Tag Box Talk, and this is Horse Stories with a Purpose. Who are we? We are equine educators, but we are owners. We are judges. We are competitors. We are coaches. We are volunteers. We are moms. We are horse owners just like you, and we want to share our horse stories with a purpose. Welcome to Extension Horses Tack Box Talk Series, Horse Stories with a Purpose. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Heine with Oklahoma State University, and we're delighted to have with us Jenny Ivey from the University of Tennessee, who is an associate professor there and also another equine extension specialist. So welcome, Jenny. Thanks so much. I'm glad to be here. Thanks. So uh, we're going to have a fun podcast here. So this is literally a story with a purpose. Um, so we're going to be talking about, uh, kind of thinking some biosecurity, but based off of your experience with some horses having some illnesses. So let's get started. So this is a really great experience, um, that I had, you know, I've been around horses my whole life and obviously, um, I've worked here at the university for several years now. Um, and I've never really quite encountered something like this. And I feel like it's a good, um, story to kind of share a little bit about what we experienced and then also hopefully how to help um, those of you out there that might be looking um, to adopt horses or to work with horses from different locations. And so a quick backstory, but um, I am a nutritionist and an exercise physiologist by training. And so my interest was to really kind of see how we could better refeed starved horses back to a good body condition. And so we had worked for a long time to try to get funding for a research project and finally did with the help of a, an internal UT grant um, in Purina Animal Nutrition and Stanley Forage. And so we worked together and we're bringing horses in for this project, both from owner surrender, from welfare cases, and from um, auction settings. <clears throat> and so we brought in horses, um, several horses from auction at first, and we had a really intensive screening process to make sure that they didn't have any disease. So we would take temperature, pulse, and respiration, um, we were trying not to commingle the horses with other groups um, to try to keep our herd separate. And for the first about 10 days or so, all of our horses looked and, and tested great. Um, they were eating, they were bright, they were alert, they were recovering really well. Um, and they had just started to gain some weight, which was great because these horses were really thin. They were a body condition of between one and two on a one to nine scale. Oh, wow. And yeah. the people were taking that skinny of horses to auctions then too, just dumping them? Yes. Um, and so we have a lot of, um, especially since I got here into Tennessee, we see a lot of starved horses in this area of the country. And I don't know, um, I don't think there's anything special about what's happening down here, um, but we really do see quite a lot. So that's what got me interested in, in how we can better refeed these horses with a little bit more practicality from a feed side and from an economic side too. Um, so we got these horses in, everybody tests great, and one horse wound up having a fever, just a little blip of a fever at one of our time points. Um, and that kind of alerted us to say, hey, what's going on here? Um, and then she went off feed and several of the others as well um, in the herd just started to not act real great. Um, and so this first horse, we'll call her horse D. Um, horse D really just kind of started to um, so some, some typical signs of respiratory distress, she had, you know, nasal discharge, fever, off feed, and kind of lethargic. And it wound up after our nasal swab that she was positive for herpes virus, influenza, and strangles all at once. And so wow. we had like the respiratory trifecta. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, man, this really just is, is kind of bad luck for us. And it turns out that of the other four horses we had, um, at the time, 
all that happened to come from an auction or a commingled setting. Um, another horse had herpes virus, another horse had strangles, and another horse had influenza. So of the four horses we had, we had multiple different types of disease and different manifestations and severities. Um, but again, they were all really thin. So it was just like, man, this is really tough to deal with. And how do we go forward? So did they, so you had the four horses that lived together. One horse had all three things. Um, and then did, were the other horses symptomatic as well? Or did you just catch it with uh, doing the nasal swabs? So we wound up nasal swabbing everyone. Um, and that's kind of where we were able to determine what was going on. Um, but while waiting for those nasal swabs, the other horses did start to develop symptoms except for one, the one that had strangles. Um, excuse me, she actually wound up being um, the one with strangles that didn't develop any symptoms, was a little bit heavier in body weight. Um, and not sure if that was it, or maybe she had some previous exposure or some immunity because none of these horses, we really didn't know any of their backgrounds. We didn't know what their vaccine status was. Um, but we know that they all were, were at an auction setting. Um, I don't, we don't know how long they had been commingled together, but all of them had originated from different locations recently, um, based on their Coggins paperwork. So we knew that they had been kind of all over the place, um, within the last several weeks. And if we think about, you know, trailering and different locations and the stress of obviously being an under conditioned horse, you know, I think a lot of that really caused them to have some disease issues. So I guess it's worth mentioning, or maybe you'll talk about it um, as we go, but, you know, a lot of people think about, well, if we just visually observe a horse, they're fine, but a lot, all of these diseases you just mentioned, you can kind of have these asymptomatic shedding horses. So I know with strangles, they can have reservoir of that bacteria up within the sinus cavities. And the only way to know is if you actually like flush, I know to do like a lavage and then culture and things like that. So yeah, the, an average owner, or, you know, just if you're looking to say, oh, it looks good, you could still be introducing new disease to the herd, right? Oh, absolutely. You know, and that was one of the things for us that we, we knew and we were looking to screen a lot of horses. And so we had, you know, kind of everything that we were doing to monitor them in that first 14 day window um, to see if they did develop diseases. And so that's why we were able to detect it when we did. Um, there was a horse that came in that wound up having a fever and went right into isolation. Um, and she did wind up developing um, influenza. And then after we kind of treated her for influenza and she was nearing uh, the end of her quarantine from that disease, she developed secondary pneumonia. Oh, and no. so it was a really challenging thing for that particular horse. And she wound up being um, in an isolation and really under pretty intensive care at the vet school here for almost um, 65 days. Oh, wow. By the time she kind of came out of that, um, and if we had been just a general owner, the price tag on that would have been really high. You know, so here we're trying to rescue this horse maybe, or take in a horse that might need some additional care, um, but not knowing that she had been diseased at the time. And so I think that's really good for owners to think about, you know, as they're going out and maybe looking for, you know, a, a project horse or a rescue animal to be vigilant about keeping their horses isolated and using good biosecurity, because you'd never want to bring that in unknowingly, you know, to your farm or risk, you know, infecting other horses, um, depending on the type of setting that they have. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, so how did that affect your, your project though? I mean, how do you do a refeeding protocol? If it was basically the horse is trying to live. <laughs> so. <laughs> 
you know, so unfortunately it pretty much put the brakes on everything for us for several weeks. Um, Cause we had to make sure that we had the disease issues under control before we brought anything new into the herd and take a step back and say, you know what, this isn't working. Um, something that we're doing is not really getting us to what we need and it's causing us more problems. <laughs> um, and, you know, it was a, a great, again, learning experience for me because I had dealt with some of those diseases independently, but never all together at the same time in a cohort of horses. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just stepping up our biosecurity, um, you know, boot dips, we were in gowns and gloves and hats, switching between horses. Um, and unfortunately we did have to euthanize two, um, that had herpes virus. Um, the, not the horse, horse D that I mentioned earlier that had all three, but one that just had herpes virus also had some musculoskeletal conditions and a melting eye ulcer at the same time. Oh no. Really struggling. (laughs) Um, but you know, unfortunately she went up, um, going down and was unable to get back up. Um, and so after several days, um, she ironically never had a fever and didn't present normally, but thankfully did not have um, the neurologic strain. It was just the wild type strain of herpes virus. Just terror um, enough that it. Yep. And it just whatever she kind of had going on, she had some really nasty stifles and some, some really painful hawks. And so I think that altogether caused her a lot of trouble. Um, and so we did wind up having to euthanize them, um, but the others were able to, to be recovered. Um, two within our project and then two that we actually adopted out um, because they weren't making progress on the refeeding trial, but were able to go out to homes um, as a healthy animal and are now doing really well with their forever home. So it was a good story. I mean, we're happy that we were able to to learn a little bit from them, but also get them into a good home as well. Gotcha. So of your herpes horses, and sorry, I'm kind of, you know, squirrel here, but so were they type one or, or type four? Um, so all of them or both of them rather, um, were type one, um, the wild type type one. And so, you know, again, I think that these horses were really just, they also had initial blood work. So when they came in on the initial blood work, you know, their white blood cell counts looked okay. They didn't really make us concerned that they maybe were fighting some initial disease. So they probably did pick it up pretty recently, um, from when we, we actually were able to take them in from the auction. And so, you know, for owners at home, or even for us, you know, the signs you're watching for were nasal discharge, a little bit of coughing, um, you know, things like that, that might be um, concerning, or at least kind of raise a flag. And so especially if you know that your horses have been maybe commingled or in a social type setting with other horses, um, it would be really good to make sure that you think about um, how to watch for those signs and call your veterinarian and keep those horses isolated from others when they come into your farm. Yeah, absolutely. So what is the, you're talking about, you learned a lot about biosecurity, um, from this kind of, uh, disease storm. So what are the key things that I, that you want to tell people that they need to be thinking about, uh, I guess when introducing new horses, cause that's certainly what happened to you. Oh yeah. So, I mean, the biggest thing I think is that if your horse has been anywhere and has been commingled or you're getting a new horse in, try to find a location on your farm or somewhere near your property that um, is isolated and away from other horses. So there's nowhere that they can have nose to nose contact. They're not sharing a water trough. Um, they can't, you know, hop across the fence, so to speak. And ideally that they're not even grazing in the same pasture. Um, because some of these diseases can be spread through respiratory droplets or um, on surfaces, which we call fomites. 
And so if it's, you know, a, a fence post that someone sneezes on and then your horse comes back a few hours later, they could still pick up that disease. So keep them separate. Um, the next thing would be, you know, encourage them to contact their veterinarian and do a health check. So whether that's a swab, if you're concerned, um, you know, get the, the horse's vaccine status, or if it's appropriate, maybe booster those vaccines or give them for the first time. And remember that vaccines are not ironclad, right? They help to protect, but they are not a guarantee. And things like herpes virus are not considered a core vaccine. So that horse may have never had a vaccine for it in the past. So just keep that in mind. Strangles is the same thing, influenza. So all these respiratory diseases are what we call at-risk vaccines or at-risk diseases, which if your horses are traveling, you know, that's something that they would be at risk for. And then um, when you're feeding or when you're, you're working with these horses, always feed them last. So go through your, in your barn, um, feed the horses that are there that are not in quarantine or not in isolation. Um, and then go work with your horses that could be sick or questionable or in isolation last. Um, you know, rinse your boots, wash your hands, maybe even change your clothes if needed. Um, so that way you're not bringing those things back to your herd inadvertently. So is the best bet, you know, kind of thinking about folks that want to maybe uh, rescue horses or, or adopt horses, if you go through um, like a rescue agency to make sure like, let them handle the horse for two weeks before you pick it up or like, um, you know, who's at the most risk because we, we buy and sell horses all the time. Right. Um, and we don't usually think about ah, disease storm. So are there specific ones that we should be more concerned about than others? So my recommendation would be, you know, to kind of just think about when did the horse last get commingled? So if it's at a rescue, perhaps just ask them, Hey, how long has the horse been on your farm? If it's only been five or six days, um, you know, maybe see if they could hold it for another few days to get through that two week isolation period. Um, one of the things that I didn't share yet, but we actually wound up trying to bring in more horses from um, different auctions and asked rescues and other kind of foster homes to hold these horses for us for a few weeks while we could get their respiratory swabs back. And we wound up swabbing an additional 10 horses and all of them came back positive for herpes virus. Wow. So, you know, at least in these arenas, um, there is a lot of disease that's floating through, but a lot of healthier horses may not ever even show signs or symptoms. And so it's just really good practice to say, let's hold them, let's quarantine them, and then they can enter the herd after that time. Um, the other piece, you know, would be to, to just ask or to think about, you know, where did this horse come from? Did it come up and maybe hit four or five sales before it ended up at the rescue? Um, or was it something that maybe was dropped off from a private home to a rescue? So thinking about maybe where that horse could have been or its previous location before it came to you or a rescue or another group can also help you to determine a good way to, to care for it at your home. Yeah. And so, you know, it might be worth going back with herpes virus. It is pretty prevalent in the horse population. And again, our normal healthy horses that aren't stressed or immunocompromised, their bodies are able to, you know, mount that response. They've got antibodies to that. Uh, and so their immune status is definitely helping them out a little bit. And so I guess I would always say, you know, visit with your veterinarian, but if you're introducing new horses, is that a time to think about even boostering your current horses? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and a lot of the people that we talk to here, 
um, we're not only thinking about at-risk diseases for the horses that leave the farm, but also the horses that stay on the farm that are exposed to those horses that have traveled. And so it's a great idea to talk to your veterinarian. Um, think about maybe, you know, we're in the early spring now, so people are starting to get out and get moving. Maybe you're going trail riding a little bit and, and all of that could be considered potential at risk. And even for your healthy horses, maybe a good idea to, to vaccinate or booster if appropriate. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, so what about this, um, the nasal swabbing part, is that something that you think owners should consider or just quarantine, follow really strict biosecurity protocols, um, and then introduce the herd? Um, I think if you're able to, to quarantine, appropriately and not seeing any real disease signs, you're probably okay. Um, but if you're worried or, you know, you see maybe some discharge or that horse seems to be off or lethargic, it might be a great idea to go ahead and swab that horse. Um, because like I mentioned in, in our situation, we wound up not seeing nasal discharge on several of the horses that were positive. But in those cases, we knew that there had, they had been in a situation where they could have been exposed um, we knew that we had a positive horse, which not everyone may have, um, depending on the situation. And that's where we worked with the, the team over at the vet school and said, yes, you know what, it's appropriate. Let's swab them for herpes virus, influenza, and strangles, all which may live in the nasal cavity and see what we might have brewing. Um, and so I think it can be a really great diagnostic tool, um, especially if you're starting to see some symptoms, but probably not needed in every single case especially if you're using good biosecurity practices and, and implementing about a two week quarantine. Okay. So I have to ask on your refeeding trial, did you get any new knowledge for us on best practices? Is the low and slow still the idea or do you have a better way? Yeah. So we are still in the process of kind of uh, digging through all of the data that this project generated. And um, it's really exciting because we just don't have a lot um, of data out there. You know, there's only about three studies that have been published on how to refeed starved horses. Um, and so I don't want to let the cat out of the bag just yet because we're hoping to share some of that as we finish up the analyses. But um, the great news is that the horses that were not diseased <laughs> and even some that were, um, all were able to be refed on the diets that we, we use. So we use the grass hay diet and then a 50-50 mixture of grass hay um, and equine senior. And so um, the nice part is that they they all were able to to be refed. They're all now out happy with homes, um, and so at least from that perspective, the diets were um, appropriate for what they needed to do to get the job done. And so um, we're hopeful that that will help, especially you know down here where alfalfa is not always as common or can be really cost prohibitive. Um, and so deadly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and so you know we're excited to be able to look at some of that too. So maybe I should, uh, since nobody knows what was in my head other than me, I better back up and uh, maybe speak <laughs> on the alfalfa thing for just a second. <laughs> alfalfa itself is not deadly. Just for us over here or down where I am, we have blister beetles and they are a real thing, folks. And so you got to make sure you're buying blister beetle uh, free hay. We actually just, uh, one of my grad students was working for a farm and lost some horses here just last week over a blister beetle. So that is why I always put my little alfalfa hat on there for a second. <laughs> we have them over here too. We see them in North Carolina and Tennessee. And, um, so they're definitely prevalent throughout a lot of the country. Yep. 
So maybe we'll have to do a whole separate uh, thing on blister beetles just to there you get go. the word out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you ever have the swarms of them? Um, I have not seen any, at least here, but I would say that, you know, generally speaking, um, there's not a ton of people that are really growing alfalfa hay here as compared to a little bit farther north. Yeah. Um, there are still some farms that are, are great at producing it, but we just don't see as many just because our, you know, we're so much more temperate, kind of like you guys. Yeah. Yeah. No, we'll get the, now I'm really going off topic, but yeah, we can get swarms of them and with, without alfalfa, they just are, a, they're a insect that is around here. So yes, every once in a while conditions are right. And they're, they're everywhere. So, okay. All right. Let's get back on topic. <laughs> I want another squirrel. So, <laughs> all right. Any last tips um, just for people thinking again? Good. So we got the quarantine down. Um, but let me ask you, what if you really don't have a facility that's that has the ability to have, you know, no separation, no contact over fence lines? What are your options if you don't have a separate area for the horse? So, um, you know, there's been some really creative ways that I've seen for people to try to make it as isolated or as separated as possible. You know, so if you even have some extra panels and you could put up a little, you know, temporary stall outside or maybe even just at the end of your barn, um, that may work. Um, I've seen some people and we don't want to reduce ventilation and kind of keep the horse in a little plastic bubble, but even putting up a tarp between um, stalls, you know, to be able to prevent that nose to nose contact can be really helpful. Um, and again, you know, feeding or working with the horses that are, that you've been around that aren't the new one first, um, can help to reduce that movement back. Don't dunk your hose in the water bucket, please. Um, <laughs> but you know, those little tips and strategies can help. Um, if you don't have another option for turnout, um, make sure that that horse goes out separately and hopefully during a time where maybe the sun is out or we can utilize some of that natural bio um, containment from the UV light to help kill off maybe what might be out there. So there are some strategies. Work with your extension um, agents or your veterinarian to kind of help develop a plan for your facility um, before you bring another horse in. So you have an idea in place and um, you know, think about what biosecurity means for your farm. So the best way to do it, and this was really important for us as we managed all of this disease, was, you know, going back to, we have to dip your boots between every section. You know, we have to um, change your, you know, our gowns and, and using good glove technique. And so obviously that was much more regulated than most barns, but a boot dip is a great idea as you come in and out of your barn. Um, you know, thinking about if you need to change your shirt, always keeping a jacket or something nearby when you work with that new horse. So if they do sneeze or wipe on you, you're not carrying that to the next horse. Um, a separate set of grooming supplies for each animal can also be really helpful. So little things like that, that you can implement over time, that then if you do have a disease, all of that is really just second nature um, instead of being totally different and a new way of operating for your farm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, I always like to mention this one. So if you are keeping all of your muck buckets and uh, manure forks separate for this horse, you can't commingle the manure, right? Or spread it on the pasture because then you've done the exact opposite. Yes, exactly. Um, and like any re like refused hay. So like kind of keeping a separate area for that type of manure um, or any waste products. 
And the other thing for us that became kind of challenging was we were also reweighing feed. So we had to have a separate feed reweighing station for each horse basically. So then we could rinse their, bu their buckets out and then bring it back into their stall. So um, it was a, a really good, I'm gonna call it a learning experience. Um, and something that I never hoped to deal with again, especially all three at once. Um, but you know, I'm glad we did because it really does help me now to talk about it to our owners and stuff and say, look, I, I know. And I, I hope that you never have to deal with this at your farm. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever just want to give up and be like, ah, that's it. <laughs> you know what? There was one night, cause we had the, the mare with the melting ulcer who also had herpes virus. Um, she had to have eye meds every hour around the clock. And because of all of this disease, we weren't able to utilize the vet school staff. So it was just me and my students. And so I was taking some of the overnight shifts to, to relieve them. And I remember standing in the barn aisle and just looking around and being like, I fought for this. Like I, I tried to get this funded. Like why? <laughs> why did I do this to myself? Um, and I just had to be like, you know what? There's, there has to be something good that will come out of this. And so we wound up trying to, you know, take a really tough situation of euthanizing those mares um, and now we created a separate study to look at um, starved horses and their metabolic function and some internal organs compared to control horses and what's different and what genes are on or off between a starved horse and a regular horse. And so um, we're not ideal, not what we thought was going to happen from the project, but we're excited to be able to look at that in a different way too. So um, yes, there were that moment specifically, I was like, I don't know that I should have done this. This was probably a really poor decision. <laughs> I'm glad we made it through. Yeah. Who knew finding starved horses would end up being, you know, a huge challenge and then everything that comes, comes with them. So yes, absolutely. Good. Well, I really appreciate you sharing uh, this story. It's kind of a, a fun worst case scenario, but I think important because a lot of us do feel, you know, maybe passionate about saving some horses or you see some in trouble, but recognize that we have to do the right thing and, and keep your current horses safe uh, while you tackle kind of these issues. Absolutely. Yes. And if you all need any helpful tips or strategies, feel free to reach out. We're glad to share what worked and what did not work in our situation. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so definitely you can um, get some information about refeeding thin horses at our extensionhorses.org. Um, also, Jenny, if you have any, you know, fact sheets or anything on that too, if you want to um, share those with me, I'll put them in the show notes. Um, and then if you want to reach out, you can certainly email us at extensionhorses at gmail.com. Um, and we can get any listener questions that you may have about refeeding um, starved horses. We can give you kind of some specific answers and get those to you as well. And don't forget to rate us and the podcast thing so that more people can hear our horse stories with a purpose. So, so thanks, Jenny. Really appreciate your time today. And with that, again, that has been our Catch Box Talk Horse Stories with a Purpose.